you're listening to Threads Radio. My name's Luke Fraser, and this is The Tonic. Thank you. 
the quietly tangling threads of David Lang's Breathless from 2003. So he's the co-founder, along with Julia Wolfe and Michael Gordon of Bang on a Can, a group who've been highly successful in both identifying and facilitating a crossover between classical music and the wider world. They've commissioned and performed a lot of key pieces over the years, too many to mention in fact. He's continued to build up a pretty substantial body of work under his own name. A lot of his music has been used for dance, and he's also made forays into opera and choral music, the latter most notably with his piece, The Little Match Girl Passion, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. And he's also written a number of key film scores, Requiem for a Dream, a film I personally happen to loathe, but enough about me, uh, and also Paolo Sorrentino's Youth and the Great Beauty. And perhaps with this range of output, it's not surprising for him to have described himself a little bit paradoxically as, quote, a Jew who makes religious music for Christian stories, or West Coaster, whose music epitomizes a certain New York sound, an atheist who writes for Hollywood. And I guess his music, well, certainly of the Bang on a Can era, has been typified by a high-octane, in-your-face post-minimalism, which perhaps seems a little bit dated now. But his recent work is much more introspective and probing, but the piece is sounding pretty sculptural to my ear and a little bit less statement-driven. And there seems to be a real sense of thought and clarity of idea behind his approach in all of his pieces. That piece, Breathless, just has a lovely drawing out of this single melodic thread and its knotty imitations between the five wind instruments. And the result has a very interesting rhythm to it, almost having this sense of groove despite the generally muted feel of the music. And that was performed by The City of Tomorrow, put out on their album Nature on the label Ravello in 2015. Thank <laughs> you. 
and it was one and it was and and it was and it was a wonderful time. And there was one man there who had one man there was one man there was one man there was one man there who had one man there who had a long tube on the end of his smoker. And he told us that he was going to tell us that he was going to put 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 us that and he told and he told and he told out of his smoker. And he told the end of his smoke, 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 the end of his smoker. Smoke the end of his smoke, the end of his smoke, the end of his smoke, the end of his smoker. And he told us that he was going to put, and he told us this, any teaspoonful of this, any of this, any smoker. One teaspoon from it, said up in this jar. But you see what I have, well, you see what I have, well, you see, and he said, well, and he said, well, and he went down, he went down, and he said, well, and he said, down, he went down, he went down, and 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 he
selection of pieces from Christian Marclay, Jukebox Capriccio, Smoker, 1000 Cycles, and Night Music. So I'm sure Christian Marclay doesn't really need much of an introduction. He's firmly established now as an international multimedia artist, much of whose work explores the relationship between sound and other media, such as photography, video, and film. But of course he started out as a turntablist and was one of that medium's key pioneers at a time very much in parallel with the innovations that were taking place within hip-hop. But his approach really couldn't have been more different. He doesn't seem to have been concerned with turntablism as a means of producing a new style, but really as an end in itself. 
is extremely virtuosic cut and pasting of often badly scratched and degraded records produce plunderphonic style textures that for want of a better term are squarely within the realm of the abstract and avant-garde. He used to experiment by breaking and otherwise damaging his own records and reportedly never paid more than a dollar for a single one. The result, heard there to great and, despite all the solemnity and verbiage of professional art speak, fun effect there on that compilation of pieces from throughout the 80s really reflects that practice for me. There's a skittery energy to these extreme montages in which the scratches and imperfections of the records seem to be as much a part of the music as whatever music was originally pressed on them. Those pieces were taken from the compilation Records, 1981-1989, put out on Atavistic in 1997. So next up, the first of two contemporary Canadian female composers featured in this episode. This is Linda Caitlin Smith. Thank you. 
Linda Caitlin Smith's Piano Quintet from 2014. There seems to be a lot of interesting music coming out of Canada at the moment, of which I'm just starting to get acquainted. Linda Caitlin Smith is based in Toronto, where she writes and lectures in composition, and she was also a member of the performance collective Urge. Her work, from what I've heard so far, has a very interior quality to it and shows a big influence to my ears, at least, on the aesthetic, if not necessarily the style, of Morton Feldman, whose lectures she attended when she was a student. Her music often seems to be informed by both literature and painting and seems to proceed at a slow and naturalistic pace, giving due time for ideas, sounds and instrumental possibilities to be gradually developed. She's written that when she composes, quote, I want to hear every moment. I want to hear sound intimately. And there's a really tactile quality to her music as well. It feels almost sculptural, like something you could really reach out and touch between your fingers. And that quintet seems to have all of these qualities and also a kind of tonal ambivalence to it that is really pretty appealing. It contains several moments of familiar harmonic vocabulary, but the lack of expected development, or if you like, the subversion of it, is fresh. And as so often, it is what is done with the materials rather than the materials per se that provides the real value. That was performed by the Bozzini Quartet with Philip Thomas on piano, and that's taken from her album Drifter, put out on Another Timbre in 2017. And that's part of the Canadian Composers series on that label, of which more later. So next, we have the longtime lost music of a really fascinating figure. African-American, openly gay, a political provocateur, and a genuine musical polymath and innovator at work, both within and outside the establishment. And there's something of a tragic arc to his story, but more of that in a bit. First, the music. This is Julius Eastman. <laughs> Thank you. 
And that's really just an incredible piece, The Holy Presence of Joan of Arc, written by Julius Eastman in 1981. So as I mentioned before, he was somewhat of a polymath. He was a professional composer, pianist, vocalist, and dancer. And his extraordinary voice gained pretty widespread recognition as a result of a nonsuch recording of Peter Maxwell Davis's classic Eight Songs for a Mad King, for which he was soloist. And as a vocalist, he was later a frequent collaborator with the likes of Meredith Monk and Arthur Russell. He was also the co-founder of the SEM Ensemble alongside Peter Kotick, and their performances have been featured at least twice so far, I think, on this show. Compositionally and artistically, he was something of a provocateur. There's an overtly political nature to his work in terms of black consciousness and his identity as a gay man, though these seem to come across more in nihilistic than liberationary terms, and all despite his rather softly spoken and academic demeanour. 
There are some extremely blunt and provocative titles to some of his pieces, multiple M-bombs, for example, and also his foregrounding of gay identity via his work, infamously incensed John Cage, himself also gay, of course, during an SEM performance of Cage's songbooks due to Eastman's insertion of multiple nude scenes and homoerotic allusions. So compositionally, he had a degree of success through the 70s, but eventually, apparently perceiving a lack of professional opportunities available to him, he grew increasingly despondent and dependent on drugs, and his life quickly unraveled. He was evicted from his house in the early 80s, and his scores were impounded by the New York City Sheriff's Office. Almost all of those scores have been lost, which goes some of the way towards explaining how his legacy has taken all of this time to begin to be established. He lived homeless in New York for several years through the 80s and ultimately died in poverty in 1990. And the first public notice of his death came via an obituary in the Village Voice and that was published eight months after his death. Anyhow, in terms of the notes, his music seems to come out of minimalism. Early pieces such as Stay On It are now being rediscovered as classics of minimalism or post-minimalism if you like. But his music doesn't really seem to stick in those boxes either. It certainly ends up being a long way from the sweet harmonies of Reich or Glass at any rate. Tensions are quickly set up, spanners thrown in works, and drama seems to constantly be enacted. So that piece, The Holy Presence of Joan of Arc, it was first performed in the kitchen in New York City in the early 80s, and only the first page of that score is known to be in existence as that was printed on the program for the kitchen performance. So having been lost, it was transcribed from a recording of that performance by Clarice Jensen. And I have to say that it's a really amazing feat of transcription on her part. It's the second part, if you like, of a two movement piece. The first being an almost painfully sparse, unaccompanied vocal prelude, which Eastman originally sang himself. And both the movements, like so much of his work, involve dramatic and suspenseful deconstructions of otherwise pop-like structures and motifs, along with a slowly evolving and discordant aleatoric sense of progress that seems to represent radical self-doubt and even trauma. It's a piece that can do strange things to you, it's simultaneously soulful in the initial language it sets up, and then really deeply unsettling in its development and subversion of it. It's been released on the compilation of his music entitled Unjust Malaise, but the recording you heard is actually from a performance by the MEC Cello Ensemble, conducted by Jonathan Hepfer, and that's from the Monday Evening Concert YouTube channel posted in 2017. So meanwhile, those of you who've been following the evolution, or maybe just the random meandering of this show over the past few months, may have noticed that I've generally been avoiding longer pieces in contradiction to my original approach, in fact. Um, really, this is just because I've wanted to get in more of a mix of music into each show, and also just aid the flow. So the next piece is the longest thing I've played in a while, at just over 30 minutes, but I really had to play a whole, and I hope you'll agree that it's worth it. This is... Cassandra Miller.
an incredible piece. That's Cassandra Miller's duet for cello and orchestra written in 2015. I have a difficult relationship with the orchestra when it comes to music being written these days. Sometimes it's hard to know what else can be done with it. And also, frankly, I just don't always like the combined sonorities of what is essentially this grandiose 18th century technology that's been dragged only half away into the 21st century. But fortunately, every now and then a piece comes along which proves me hopelessly and pathetically wrong. And this is definitely one of them. I think firstly that it's just a kind of brilliant and audacious use of an orchestra to have the orchestra as this stop-start accompaniment to a solo cello, which itself for the majority of the piece is playing only two notes. So I think the title duet is quite telling here. It might really be pushing it to have called this a concerto in any sense. And the dialogue with the orchestra as it progresses is just so engrossing. A pattern is set up and established but almost unnoticeably ends up becoming something else. And at the risk of relating everything on this show back to the music of Morton Feldman, the final part do seem very reminiscent of his classic Coptic Light, also for orchestra. So Cassandra Miller, she's a Canadian composer, and she's currently based in London, where she lectures at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. A lot of her work involves transcription of previously existing pieces of music, and she said that this piece, quote, came together as a homage to the Sicilian opera composer Vincenzo Bellini, and that it attempts to reconcile the extroverted romantic character of an orchestra with the cellist Charles Curtis's introverted performance practice. So that's performed by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, and they were conducted by Ilan Volkov. And that's put out on her album Ozoma on Another Tambra in 2018. So I think that piece would have made a great ending to this show. However, I've left the next piece, or rather two conjoined pieces, by Marianne Amache to the end, as I think they might be considered optional. So let me explain. Marianne Amache was an American electronic composer and sound artist whose work was almost entirely site-specific often in very large spaces and across multiple channels. And she has very rarely produced anything in stereo, yet alone for recorded formats. But for one reason or another, she seems to have been convinced to do so in the late 90s and produced two records for John Zorn's Sadiq label in stereo, the first of which you'll hear the first track of coming up. So she had a pioneering interest in a phenomenon known as autoacoustic emission. This is a sonic phenomenon whereby a sound is produced by the ear itself in response to sound heard. So when the ear hears two very closely pitched tones, it in fact produces a further two tones, one being the sum of the frequencies being heard and the other being the difference between them. So for example, if two tones at 1 kHz and 1.2 kHz are heard, the ear will produce additional tones at 200 Hz and 2.2K, though these are much fainter in intensity. That can be heard in a lot of Amache's work, and the piece coming up will only work if you are listening over speakers, so the frequencies between the left and right channels can mix together before striking your ear. And also, it'll only work effectively when played pretty loud, or in fact very loud, so it's for that reason that I've left it to the end of the show. If you're able to listen over speakers, and if you have sympathetic or better still vacationing neighbours, then I recommend you to turn your speakers up loud, give this a listen, and experience this bizarre effect of autoacoustic emission. 
It's physically just completely unlike anything else I've experienced before. People have described after listening to these pieces of the sound emanating from inside their own head rather than through the speakers, or at least in tandem with the speakers. And this is effectively precisely what's happening. I felt this really strongly to the right hand side of my head. It's like the music is playing in a small enclosed chamber towards my right ear. And this is happening simultaneously with the music in the room. It's really startling. And after everything goes back to normal and you can carry on with your life in the joyful manner to which you become accustomed. Anyhow, this is Marianne Amache's Head Rhythm 1 and Plaything 2.
the bizarre auto-acoustic emissions produced by the music of Marianne Amachet. That was Head Rhythm 1, Plaything 2, written sometime in the 90s, I believe, and taken from the album Sound Characters, Making the Third Ear, released on Sadiq in 1999. So that's it for another episode of The Tonic. Just to say thanks to Calvin, Nick, Lee and Freddie at Threads. The next episode of The Tonic will air on Wednesday, 30th of October, between 10 and 12 British summertime. My name's Luke Fraser. Thanks for listening.